Hi, everyone. Welcome to the comics table <laughs> at the Olive Tree at the Comedy Cellar. I am standing in or sitting down for Noam Dwarman, the owner of the Comedy Cellar, and comic Dan Natterman. I am Periel Ashenbrand. You guys probably usually know me as the producer and sometimes um, host who horns my way in. <laughs> um, Noam and Dan couldn't make it today, but I wasn't going to turn down an opportunity to have our guest. I'd Yay. actually been trying to get you for a very long time, but this was the Thank only you. time you could make it. Yes. And they were like, we can't. And I was like, you guys are out. <laughs> And it's probably going to be better like this. Um, I'm so thrilled to introduce Amanda Seals. Thank you. Who is a comic, an actor, a writer, a producer, and much, much more. <sighs> I'm tired just hearing that. <laughs> I think one of the most important, interesting voices we've got going on today. I um, am not going to go through all of your accomplishments because I feel like since it's just the two of us, we can talk about them actually oh, point wow. by point. Okay. Um, will you guys take pictures? Cause I usually do that. <laughs> um, you have, well, first of all, you're hosting NBC's new comedy competition series called bring the funny yes do you want to start off talking about that a little bit yeah what do you want to know well what is it and um when is it starting so and bring the funny is gonna premiere july 9th on nbc and it's basically a comedy competition show but in a different style than previous like we have all seen uh, last comic standing and that was like the brand that NBC was really behind in terms of comedy competition then they decided they wanted to like diversify so they wanted and I don't just mean diversify in terms of like culture but diversify in terms of comedy and so uh, Bring the Funny is not just stand up it's variety it's sketch it's like a bunch of stuff in between um, and I think it's really just a different kind of format similar it's like the comedy version of so of like world of dance or so you think you can dance like oh, it's wow. not just okay. you know what i mean it's not like just um what's the what's the what's the dance show that everybody watches dancing with the stars like dancing, dancing with, with the, the stars time. is just ballroom right okay. like i didn't know that i've never seen that show, i mean it's okay. like it's all just like styles of ballroom dance whereas okay. like so you think you can dance is just like all styles of all dance and it's just a matter of like who's the best out of that and so that's essentially what bring the funny is it's me hosting and then the judges are keenan thompson jeff foxworthy and chrissy teigen oh my god jeff, that's so jeff good. is the best <laughs> And I just never thought I'd be like besties with Jeff Foxworthy. And that's amazing. It um and it's also just it was dope because like we never met. All of us had never met before. Like me and Keenan have known each other kind of like from a distance, just like we were on Nickelodeon when we were both the same age, and like we both have like a bunch of like friends in common, you know, through SNL mm -hmm. and this through the the business. And then here we are, and it was like, oh, I've known you forever. So they put yeah, they just put together. us together, and all of us, the day, from day one, it was just like, oh, okay, we love each other. Great. And did you start recording already? Or not yeah, we yet? shot the show. Sh oh, you shot the entire show. It's coming mm -hmm. out. It's what? coming out July 9th, yeah. So nice. we shot the whole show, and then there's like a, a live finale episode later in the year. But yeah, we shot the whole show. We had a blast. It was like an actual fun job. It's so funny. Christy was like, wow, I actually got to have like fun at work. And I'm like, I know. 
Right. Because I think people just naturally think like if you're doing television, it's always fun. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. And honestly, it's not always fun with your, you know, who you're doing the shows with. Like sometimes right. you're on shows with people and you're just like, eh, or you don't like everybody or, you know, it's not always a walk in the park. And, and I know that that sounds like kind of bratty because it's like you're doing television. Yeah. Like, come on. But with every job, whether you are, you know, saving donkeys in India or you're a trash person in Allentown, Pennsylvania, or you are a TV host in L.A., like your coworkers can very much de determine totally. how fun or not or how bearable your job is. Well, a lot of people, comics, complain about being a comedian and that there's like a lot of stuff that the audience doesn't necessarily see behind the scenes. Well, we don't like people in general. Like comics right. are exactly. misanthropes. Exactly. You know, so it's like when you find people like... That's that, true. Yeah. We are. Like before I was a comic, I just thought I was like this mean person. And right. then once I like found my way into stand-up and like the, the, the family of comedy, I was like, oh, I'm, yeah. I'm not mean. I'm a comedian. Yeah. <laughs> Got it. Okay. Well, it's interesting because I feel like it's... Um, it's work that, in part, you do so publicly, but it's also so much of it, I find, anyway, it's work that really does take place um, in a very isolating way. Well, yeah, your brain, it's just so, in, it's so cerebral. Yeah. And it requires you to exist in a certain way. Like, to be a comic, you have to exist a certain way. Like, you just have to think all the time. Yeah. You just have to be so aware well, somebody was saying, I heard Chris Rock talking about to somebody about how they couldn't believe that Robin Williams killed himself. And Chris Rock was like, what are you talking what? about? <laughs> like, that's the easiest thing in the world to, to understand. understand. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so how and where did you start out before you realized that you were a comic? Like, what were you doing? I was always like comedy adjacent because mm -hmm. I've always just been a funny person mm -hmm. and like my family is funny and my friends are funny so like and did you grow up in Gren Grenada? No I did not grow up in Grenada I, I mean I spent my summers there and I've gone to Grenada like every year of my life pretty much but I spent even though I didn't grow up physically in Grenada I grew up surrounded by West Indians mm -hmm. so I grew up in a very Caribbean um, like household mm -hmm. and I grew up in Orlando and L.A. So I was born in L.A. I lived there till I was eight. Then I moved to Orlando and I lived there till I was 18. Then I went to school in New York and I was here in New York until September 2015. And right. so I went to purchase for undergrad in Columbia for grad. I know you have a master's degree from Columbia, right? Yep. Yeah. And African-American studies. Mm -hmm. And so I was doing a lot of like I was on radio, I was on Sirius Satellite Radio as a host, and then I was a VJ on MTV, and then I started doing music. So I was touring and rapping and singing, I know. and I've had like a very kind of just motley path in terms of the different spaces I've been in. And then I used to like sell hand painted bags on MySpace to try and like make ends meet, and then I would like you know, wake up and think of like, okay, how am I going to like make money this week? You know? And then I, I, um, what were you thinking when you were getting a, ma what year were you getting a master's at Columbia in African American studies? Oh, three to oh five. Okay. So that was when I still had like a lot of hope and innocence. 
And then that kind of gets like beat out of you. That's gone. And and then you just have to figure out like, okay, what am I really about? Like I could hustle. I was always a hustler. I could always figure out how to keep my head above water. But I was like, damn, I want to swim. Like I don't want to mm-hmm. just keep treading mm-hmm. water. And so I was DJing. I mean, I've done like yeah, all it, these different yeah. things to just try to figure it out. And it's not like they weren't my passions. They just weren't the passion. Mm-hmm. And, um, well, I, I find a lot of your work very intellectual, even the stand up. And so yeah. it came as no surprise at all when I was like, oh, yeah, she has a master's degree from Columbia. <laughs> like, that makes perfect sense. Thank you. But I feel like part of the reason I've been able to move so swiftly through, like, the, the steps of stand up is because, like, by the time I got here, I was, like, 34, and I had an, I had established my voice. I already knew who I was. I right. already knew my angle mm-hmm. on like life, mm-hmm. and so that to me. And I wasn't afraid of the stage and the mic because I'd been hosting and I'd been performing. So by the time I got to stand up, I had already kind of gotten through the the rough patches that a lot of folks go through in their early years. And I was right. coming like just as a packaged person, and. Um, and so it was the hardest part of like finding my way through stand up was just like getting used to just like being in an unfamiliar world of people and learning the ropes. And, you know, you can't skip steps. You can only speed them up and just having to navigate the space. What would be funny was people would be like, oh, you know, stand up is such a sexist, you know, uh, realm. I mean, how are you going to handle that? I'm like, I come from hip hop. Stand up is like the Women's Day Parade. <laughs> Compared to hip hop, and there's no guns, so I can manage. Do you th- do you re- do you think that's true? Do you think it's you you don't find it to be largely? I mean, it white is white and male. It is, but like I'm a black woman. The world has always been largely white and male for me. Right. So it's nothing. Doesn't new. matter where you are. Yeah, it's just nothing new. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's literally just like it's largely white and male. But I already know how to deal with that. Because I've been practicing. I mean, I've had just a, an immense amount of practice with Brad, you know, and uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh-huh. you know. So I'm like, yeah, yeah, whatever. And I think the more so, it's it's just navigating. You know what? Honestly, for me, it was just I was actually lucky because I I came into that space without giving a fuck about that, right? Because I had already had to deal with so much other bullshit in the other spaces mm-hmm. I'd been in, that by the time I got to stand-up, it was like, I don't care about that. I don't come here to tell jokes. Well, one of the things that I loved about your HBO special, I'd be known for everybody um, who's listening, is that I feel like when we talk, and we, t- we do talk on this show a lot about white privilege. Um, really? Yeah, I don't get to talk as much as I like to. <laughs> but um, I think one of the things... That's so interesting and great to me about your work, but especially about your special was that you break it down in a way that is so clear, but it's also so funny. And I think that for me anyway, to be educated in that way, Mm -hmm. um, but you've is is really um, profound and important. I mean, and that's the thing that's always drawn me to stand up and to comedy. I'm, right. I mean, I am a writer sort of first, or I was a writer first, and that's sort of how it comes to life, right? 
But you also say, I've heard you say, like, I'm not here to try and educate people. Like, I'm not. in. No, that's not it. It's not that. It's just that because I am here as an educator, but I'm not here to just sit down with every individual white person and explain shit that they can Google. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, if I'm in my work and I choose to. Right. It's my prerogative, mm-hmm. but it is not my perp. Like it's not my. It's not your job. Obligation. It's not your responsibility. Yes. It's not. Mm-hmm. If I decide, if I so choose to, yeah. it is. Like it is my purpose to make people laugh while learning. Mm-hmm. But it's about what I decide to teach. And on your time in your space. Yes. And I feel like a lot of times there's this kind of like unspoken and sometimes very spoken expectation for black people or even for women to just have to explain like things that are just readily available like it's just available that's right i think that's absolutely true like i can't i'm not trying to spend my day popping white bubbles that's mm-hmm. for white people to do for other that's for people who happen to be white to do to other white mm-hmm. people just pop 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 pop, pop you yeah. know like my publicist has she's like i have become like a swashbuckler i just have to i'm just popping bubbles all day because i popped her white bubble and mm-hmm. she's like able to see things i'll never forget when my publicist like text me and was like band-aids and I was like, I don't know what this, what does this mean? And she was like, there's no Band-Aids for black people. That's right. She's like, Band-Aids are all for ba- white people. Yeah, but they're called flesh color. But yes, who's flesh? who's flesh? Exactly. And she was like, oh my God. Ah! And like, she was on a trip with me once where she saw like three separate acts of racism happen to mm-hmm. me in one trip. And she was just like, I've never recovered. It's probably a low number. It's like, three. I mean, it was just like, yeah. But she was like, how are you just like, conti-? I'm like, because this is par for the course. Like, but she had witnessed it like firsthand and was like, wait, what, what? And she was like, I've never recovered. That, that like drove her. I think that a lot of, I think that white people are a lot in denial because they don't, they just don't have to deal with it. Of course. And so they're like. If I don't acknowledge it, then I won't be expected to fix it. Mm hmm. Cause then that means that's I don't right. even know it's there. And then, yeah, and then it's not my and like it's not me. Like that's the other thing is that like <laughs> they get so. I mean, we get so defensive, right? Like, oh, but I'm not like that. It's like, well, but your uncle, uh, <laughs> maybe you are, maybe you're not, right? But, but like, it's still there, like every day. It's still your task. Yes. That's really what it is. Like the mm-hmm. same way that it's not my task, like it is your task. Right, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> like, I didn't build this shit. Yeah. It's not for me to unbuild. Mm-hmm. It's not for me to break this shit down. It's for y'all. And like I mean, black women have carried <laughs> the largest load since the beginning of time. Literally like loads of laundry. <laughs> like, like actually literally. Like, literally like mm-hmm. loads of cotton, like your your children. Like, you know, so there's there's just when I do stand up and I speak like all of that is in it mm-hmm. you know even if it's not verbalized like directly sure it's at the crux of it you know it's it's a, I feel like my tone is similar to kind of to Paul Mooney in, mm-hmm. in terms of like where we come from in our comedy like I would never say that like I am you know like I would never compare myself to Paul Mooney I would never venture to do something so silly but I would say that like I come from the same mm-hmm. Place in the cotton mm-hmm. as, as Paul. I love that. <laughs> and uh, and I was fortunate enough to open for him like early on. Early on, I mean, I, who gets to say early on? I have I've only been doing stand up since 2013. But really, mm-hmm. wow. 
Yeah, I've only been doing stand up since 2013. I'm telling you, Although what? That's I, a lifetime in like stand up world. <laughs> I mean, it depends on who's sitting at this table. Right, exactly. Right? Because exactly. some people at the table are like, years, you don't get yeah. to talk about stand up. You've yeah. only been doing stand up since 2013. I don't know. I mean, I have to say that for as prickly um, as comics are, one thing that like I've noticed is somebody who just started like less than two years ago to do stand up is that. It's a warm community. It, it depends. You definitely get specifically white men who will sit at a table and try and make you feel like because you have not been doing stand up for 35 years and because you like weren't on the road in Iowa and sleeping in a motel 6 just so you can tell jokes that like you don't deserve the right yeah. to sit at the table. I was I've never even performed at the cellar. Well, I've never performed here at the Comedy Cellar. Neither have I. <laughs> like, <laughs> like I'm the, you know, like I have a lot of friends who have passed here, but uh -huh. I left and went to LA. Yeah, you're not here. Right? It was really hard. Like I've been talking to uh, whoever I don't need to say their name, but for a while, had reached out to them to see if you could do the show. And you're just, I mean, you're not here, right? You, I don't live yeah, here. You don't live here. Yeah, I live in LA. How's so. LA? LA is awesome because. Again, I got to LA by the time the same way that I got to stand up by the time I was fully developed, I got to LA by the mm. time I was fully developed. So like the same things that kind of eat people up when they get to LA prematurely, like I didn't have to go through that. Like I got to LA, I did all that in New York. I do, I went through all of my scrapes and bruises and being lied to and you know, taking out loans you can't pay and all that crazy shit. Like I did all of that in New York. So mm -hmm. by the time I got to LA, I was already who I needed to be to get to where I wanted to go. I always say New York makes artists, LA makes stars. So I always tell people, I feel like start out in New York yeah. because there's just a different grind here. Yeah. And the grind here is based on being talented. And yes. I feel like the grind in LA is based on being connected. Mm -hmm. I think that's, that's definitely true. Um, and I want to be connected based on my talent. And right. it's very tempting to find other routes. You know, and like you just kind of go, you don't get to develop in the same way in L.A. I personally feel that you do here. I was just talking to um, Gina Yashere's manager, Jody. Mm -hmm. Do you know her? No. She's been, anyway, they've been working together for like, yeah. I don't know. But shout out to Gina. She's amazing. Because of Gina, I do not touch remote controls ah! in hotel rooms. <laughs> I have to get a bag and put a bag over the hotel, over yes! the van. Control condom. Yes. She does the best hotel reviews. Of all. I've lost time, like in my life, by just <laughs> going through her hotel reviews and like watching them more than once. She's brilliant. I mean, she really is just an absolute brilliant human being. But anyway, I was talking to Jody, and she was like, "Talent, who's you know been in the industry for like twenty five years." She was like, um, "Talent rises in New York." It does. And that like almost makes you feel like it's all, like it's worth it. It's right? a meritocracy. Mm -hmm. But that's what I loved about comedy. Coming from music and hosting and whatnot, like you just appreciate being a stand-up because at the end of the day, like if you're not funny, you will not advance. Yeah, you, can't, you can't fake it. You can't. You cannot And there's fake only it. one compliment. That's funny. It's not like, oh, I liked your tone mm -hmm. or, oh, you know, like in, in music, they can come up with a million different mm -hmm. ways to not mm -hmm. say, right, right, you right. can't sing. You know right. what I mean? But like in stand up, like you're either like, it's either that was funny or like, yeah, I see you working. <laughs> and that lets you know, like, okay. But it's just like, it doesn't matter who goes up, right? Like you could, it, it's like you're either laughing, like or, the room's either laughing or, or they're, they're not. not. Yeah. That's it. 
And I mean, I'm spoiled at this point because I have my own audience. Mm-hmm. So then you go back to doing a festival. Yeah. You know, you go different and you're like. I don't think that's spoiled, though. I think that's something that you earn. And no, it, it's true. But then you go back and you go into a space that's like, well, when you start like, you know, getting your material back up and you're doing, you know, your regular showcases at the store or at, you know, Laugh Factory, et cetera, and you're not in front of your own audience anymore, you have to remember it. You're like, right. oh, right. <laughs> Who are you guys? Okay. So, oh, so you like Trump. Got right. it. Okay. Okay. That, okay. That's actually interesting. I mean, I was just having this conversation. I feel like funny is funny, though, right? Like, whether yeah. e- even, I mean, within reason. Funny is funny, but not everybody has a sense of humor in this day right. and age, especially. Like, for you to, like, like Donald Trump, you have to be telling yourself so many lies right. and you have to be going to such lengths that I can't imagine that sense of humor would be right. spared. <laughs> like you're, everything gets skewed. So, the, you know, or you're saying that like you can't imagine that somebody that like somebody with such different politics would be able to make somebody who likes Trump laugh. My thing is like for you to like Trump, you literally have had to tell yourself so many lies. You come from such a place of like a skewed view of things that when I say something that is genuinely funny about this person, you're so off center in order to ride with this person that you can't even you can't even get to where I'm at because you've had to commit so wholeheartedly to the fuck shit that my humor about it won't get through. Because you've had to, like, stronghold yourself to, like, you can't say anything negative about him. You can't say anything because that's the only way that you can allow yourself to even go along with this charade. Charade. I um, I can't stand Trump. I think he's the just worst person ever. But it's not ever. even, it's like but the whole situation. there are people on this show who can't stand certain things about him but are not as, you know, horrified. Are they white men? Some of them are. I mean, it's just like, I don't, I don't know how you cannot be horrified unless you just are illiterate or deaf. I mean, you're preaching to the choir for me, but I'm just like, I don't know. And I mean, at this point, like I had to kick two white people out of my show the other day. Ooh, tell me about that. It wasn't even that I kicked them out. They kicked themselves out. Like basically I was in Tempe, Arizona, which is already, Arizona is already on some other shit. And... I am a very strong believer that it is incredibly important that like when we are faced with like people being arrogant about their willful ignorance, that you can't let that ride. Mm-hmm. Like, and I mean that on the internet, I mean that at work, like you just can't stand by and be like, oh, well, it's none of my business or, oh, I don't like confrontation. Like, nah, you got to like at least say, nah, <laughs> it, like just say nah. Mm-hmm. Like that's my new movement. Like just say nah. Like even if you are on the internet, it's like a riff on the like drugs. Just, like, yes, exactly. Nancy Nancy it's the, it's da- dare to keep kids off fuckery. Uh-huh. Like the fact that there are people on the internet who will just say wild shit, and what we'll do is you'll look at it and be like, "That's crazy," and keep scrolling. Yeah. No, you have to say something to that person. Doesn't mean you have to go into a whole diatribe with them, but you can just be like, "You that's this is incorrect," and because no one's checking people, we don't check anybody anymore so like i'm in the show and i tell the uh the joke that i is is it a joke it's just basically me creating a a nomenclature between white people and people who happen to be white and i do that in my special right and i i clearly define like the differences and so i was telling that on stage in arizona and i don't even do material for my special but the crowd was so White. white and we were in arizona and so i was like you know what let me just pull this one out the box 
right? So I tell the difference, and when I explain the difference, everyone applauds, right? Because because it's true, basically. <laughs> Except these two white couples that are like very near the front. So they're in the front, and they're looking at me, daring me to say something, because they're just like adamantly not clapping. There's like an uproar happening, and they're just looking at me, hands clasped. And I looked down at them. I was like, oh, y'all not going to clap? I was like, if you're a white person in this audience, you're not clapping. I'm gonna ask you. I'm like, I'm gonna escort you out. And they were like, and then they started to stand up. And I was like, oh, y'all leaving? Well, hit the road, Jack. And so, then of course, you know, the audience is so excited to sing "Hit the Road, Jack." So, come to find out, after the show, someone came up to me and was like, you know, those people were sitting across from us, and earlier in the show, I had had a bad day. I had a bad day. And so when I got on stage, I spent like the first 15 minutes just rambling about like my day. And I'd had like an argument with my boyfriend. I was just kind of like more mm-hmm. in that space. And then I was like, oh, wait a minute. Just so you all know, like this is not going to be the whole show. Like I'm absolutely going to get in the asses of white people. Like just so we're clear. <laughs> like this isn't, this isn't what the show mm-hmm. is. I was like, because the reality is. And then I kind of just started going into my more... Mm-hmm social commentary material. And the, the woman said to me that when I did that, she saw this person across from her lean over to her husband and say, we're leaving in 15 minutes. Oh my God. Not surprised at all. Right. right. So they were already, and then when they left the venue, my opener said he was standing there and they were like, we saw you on stage, but we just got kicked out because we were getting kicked out for being ignorant white people. And he was just like, I mean, yeah, that sounds like Amanda. <laughs> it's right on, right on cue. But I just don't. And, and so, a friend of mine was like, well, I just don't understand, like, why do you even have to, like, do that? Mm-hmm. Like, it just seems like they paid their tickets. Why can't they stay? And I was like, well, they didn't pay their tickets to make me uncomfortable on mm-hmm. stage. And they didn't pay their ticket. They didn't pay for their tickets for, like, to make the other people in the space feel okay with their ignorance. At the end of the day, like, they can go get a refund. Mm-hmm. But I am not interested. I, I, you also, it's like you sent security over there to kick them yes. out. Like, they, I, they got up. And as a performer, we get tricked into this thing, into this thought process that we're beholden to perform for all and anyone. And I'm sorry, but like, I'm curating. Mm-hmm. I'm not wasting. I'm curating I'm, my fucking yeah. audience. Curating my fucking audience. Like, I'm not wasting my intellect and energy on people who are going to sit here and, you know, stonewall me. And when I'm on stage, I don't want to be scanning the crowd and then hit, you know, keep hitting the obstacle of these fuckers. Yeah. So I was like, no. And, and the, the biggest reason though, It's because I really, truly believe that, like, the actual sane folks and actual people with ethics and actual people who, like, genuinely would like to just have a peaceful life, I do feel like we outnumber. Mm -hmm. I really do feel like we outnumber the jackasses Mm -hmm. or the jackholes. That's, I hope, I mean, I hope you're right. I do. It's encouraging. I do. I think that there's something about, you know, privilege or money, buying tickets, whatever it is, like, that doesn't give you a right to. A, not feel uncomfortable ever. Right. right? Yes, right. Because people love to say, like, I paid my tickets and not not to get joked on. And I'm like, you came to a fucking comedy show. Actually, that's exactly what you paid. You know, then people people love to say, like, I paid my tickets so I can heckle. No. No, no, you fucking didn't. And while we're at it, get off your fucking phone. Don't sit in the front of my audience. No, that's... Well, I mean, now... I'm not having it. I'm not having it. They put them in bags now. You can't even. And there's about to be an announcement set at the beginning of my shows. It's like, if you have your phone out, she will come for you. Like, uh, we will send somebody for you. They, you get kicked out downstairs if you take, if you even take your phone out. Don't take your phone out. Don't tape me. I saw someone put up like a minute of my material the other day. I'm like, what are we doing right now? You put up a whole minute? That's like the first 
law like, going to a fucking comedy show. That's what happened to Louis, though, too, with that whole crazy thing with the Parkland shooting joke. Did you hear about that? I didn't, but I'm not interested in talking about that. Fair enough. <laughs> we can move on. Um, yeah, I mean, that's insane. You it's sh- just, it's just, and also it's just like a courtesy. It's like a courtesy well, thing. I mean, I don't. But people don't have that either. No, I don't think so at all. (laughs) I think it's more like, here's a bag, put your phone in it, and if you take it out, you're going to be asked to leave. But what's irritating is that, like, that's a cost to me. It's a cost to me to have to then, like, get the bag system. No, it's not. You have the venue, jack up the tickets, $2, and... We may have to start doing that, because it's getting annoying. And to be perfectly honest, it's not even as I'm... I'm not even as disturbed at the taking, at the filming of the stuff, as I am with just the distraction that it causes. Like, you don't take out your phone at a movie. Don't take your phone out of my fucking show. At least at a movie, it's not actual human beings on the... No, it's a real (laughs) thing. It's like a real thing. They literally... Yeah, it does. I see it outside here all the time. It, You're they, sitting they, here texting while I'm on the stage. No, it's it it is. It's um it's it's terrible. It drives me crazy. It's and crazy. it's like and it drives me crazy like that I don't like that when my man does it. I don't like that when my right. state like audience does it. Well, like Well, the phone is a real issue in general, I think in the culture <sighs> we live in. Um you wrote as you say a whole ass book. I can't even deal. <laughs> I can't I can't even deal. I can't. I wrote a book. I wrote a whole ass fucking book. That's amazing. Congratulations. I want to accept your congratulations, but I can't even believe it. So I'm I like. Know. It's it's a bit. It's like having a baby. Writing a book is like having a baby. It took longer. It took longer than having yeah. a goddamn baby. It took a, a year. It comes out in October. I got What's the it book. called? It's called Small Doses. It's the literary component to my podcast, Small Doses, which is um, potent truths for everyday use. And it's just, I'm scared. I'm like scared. What are you scared of? Because it's so permanent. Yeah. Uh, You know what the good news is, though? Most people don't read. (laughs) That's not good for sales. (laughs) It's so permanent. I mean, you'll be fine, but... It's just very like it's not any more permanent than a podcast or like a taping of something. It's just more permanent in that it doesn't it's still it's the written word. I like, know. The written word is just it's amazing. It's very sacred to me. So and my uncle who's a judge in Grenada was like, you know, a book is a deposition. I was like, damn. <laughs> He was like, so make sure you edit it once and edit it twice. And it's true because when I went when I went back and edited it the second time with that mindset, I was like, oh, we gotta change that. Nope, gotta change that. So I mean they I've written two books. They make they make me vet them with like the in-house counsel. Like I mean, especially like the shit that I was writing about. What but, were you writing about? I mean, I just write humor, non-fic- nonfiction, yeah. memoir. But, you know, I'm telling real stories about real people, as I'm sure you yes. are as well. And I'm sure they vetted the shit out of that book. If they did, I mean, I don't say a lot of like names. I only say like... I change names. Like, I don't, like, well, so my book is essays, stories, blurbs. There's some doodles in there. Mm-hmm. And it covers the span of a, def- a bunch of different topics. So, like, if you listen to my podcast, it's side effects of. Every episode is side effects of a topic. So, side effects of insecurity, side effects of type A personalities, side effects of the curve, like, side effects of um, 
What's another one? Of race in the workplace. Like okay. there's, So it ranged. And so there's six sections in the book. There's a section on being a woman. There's a section on people are weird. Section on racism. Section on career. Mm-hmm. Section on self growth and empowerment and then a section on relationships did I say relationships no. no okay so there's six sections and then within each section there are four chapters and each of those chapters have an essay blurbs and a story associated with that oh, specific wow. chapter oh wow that's great so it's I mean it's a 320 page fucking book wow yeah I don't know who I think I am and then, my, and, and my book agent's like what's next I'm like <laughs> yeah like- and then because I'm an idiot, I have in my head that I need to write a novel. Why? Why would you find something harder yeah. to write, Amanda? Yeah. But now I can't shake it. Really? I don't I, think I could write a novel. I know the problem is I know I can write a novel and so now I have to write the goddamn novel. Well then it will then I think it won't be that hard if it if it because if you have it inside you then it just I mean I just need the time. And so like we like so Smart Funny in Black is really the next book that I really should be writing. Like a fake text not a fake, but like a textbook style book for Smart Funny in Black. And Smart Funny in Black, like we're going on tour in July. Mm-hmm. We're on the road for the whole month and it's my black pop culture comedy game show. And it really is my baby. Like Smart Funny in Black is my legacy. There's things that I want to do with Smart Funny in Black that I can't even verbalize because I don't want people to even try to do it before I do it. And we're expanding the brand and we're doing all these things. And I feel like that's really mm-hmm. like where I should go. But then I have a story in my head. Mm. I have a story in my head that has to get told. It needs to get told on television. Um, but I feel like there's a book component with it and I'm just like so irritated with myself there's I'm so you don't understand You're I'm gonna genuinely have to go, like lock yourself in a closet somewhere I am I'm gonna have to go to like Grenada and just, I was just shut it down that, yeah. even even better I really honestly need to go to just like my mom's house or I need to go somewhere where there's like a chef and really just um have somebody just make sure that I'm fed as long as I'm fed, I can. You can. You can. Man, listen. How can, long did it take you to write? One year. Yeah. You know why? Because I learned Do that you feel I like have no a long discipline. Time? It was just longer than I considered. Like I just really thought I was gonna just. I just thought I was just like. But. I think a year is pretty good. It's oh my god! I think it's fine. I feel like the novel takes longer. I think so. Longer. I think so. I need to just I need to just be cognizant. This is what I would really like to do. I'd really like to just sit down and plan out my next 18 months, right? You sound very organized, I have to tell I'm you. I'm trying to get there. I want to plan out my next 18 months and I want to in that 18 months literally make two week spaces over the course of that yeah. 18 months where I'm writing. I think the thing about writing a book that people who don't do this don't really get is it's like you need huge chunks of time to be able to continue That's what the I thought know. process. That's what I didn't know. Right. It's not like you can write for a day and then go do something else for a week and then come back. No. Try it's not like you can write for a few hours no. and then just be like, and that's what I was trying to do. Right, Like no. I'll get up and I'll write for like three hours and then I'll come back to this. No, bitch. You go to Arizona to your aunt's house and yeah. sit down for a week yeah, and yeah, just yeah. hammer yeah. the shit out. I, for my second book, I moved to Tel Aviv for three months. I mean, it was a few Mazel years ago. Thank you. Thank you. Um, but yeah, I mean, there was no way I was getting that shit done here. What made you be able to get it done there? I mean, 
Did you I, like not just, know a lot of people? Yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, I just wasn't that as distracted as I am here. It's like when you're working and right. phone and jobs and this and that. Yeah, I mean, it's just less distracting. Like, and that was my job there, like to go sit down every That's day. The key. And you made it your job. Yeah, you have to make it. You sit down for eight hours every day for three months. I feel like the. I always feel like the writing isn't the part that's. That's the easy part. It's the editing and then the do the second draft. The editing. Exactly. Like, I didn't know about any of this. Yeah. Like, you know it, but you don't know it. And right, then when it was yeah. like, I mean, I got to write this whole shit that exactly. I just wrote. I got to read. Like, I have to read the fucking thing for the 37th time. I don't want to do this. <laughs> I don't want to do this. Um, can we talk about abortion? Yeah. Okay. Um, cause we talk about th- that we talk about abortion on the show a lot also, but what winds up happening is that like it usually veers off into some conversation about late term abortion, which I always feel like really deflects from what the conversation should actually be. And so when I knew that we were going to talk, I was like, this is going to be a great opportunity <laughs> <laughs> to actually talk about what's going on yeah. in this country with abortion in a way that I would like the listeners to um, hear. Cause it's very cut and dry. I mean, it's just very cut and dry. I mean, we've got a bunch of people who are deciding what women's bodies should do that are not women. Uh, and then we have a bunch of women who are assisting them mm-hmm. in deciding on what women's bodies should do who are turncoats. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so that's what the guys always say. They're like, yeah, well, women, you, women, the, the number of women who are against abortion uh, is the same as the number of I don't men. know if that's an accurate... It's, I think it's relatively... Anyway, but I'm like, who... It it's doesn't irrelevant. Matter. It doesn't change it the doesn't facts. It doesn't matter. It doesn't change the facts. I mean, the reality of the facts is that no one should be saying that a woman has to have a baby if she gets knocked up. Mm-hmm. It's just not... And the reality also is that there's just way too much nuance to create right. these generalized so rules. That's the thing. There's and too at much six nuance. weeks, nobody even knows they're pregnant for the most part, right? So it's like these laws are... And also that, as usual, I think disenfranchised women of color are, by and large, the people who suffer the most... From these, yes, har- I mean, I think racist laws, but you know who's having the most dip in having children is white women. White women have had the biggest dip in giving birth, and so apparently the the there is a genuine uh thought process that says that what this really is for is to create more opportunities for white for white women yeah. to reproduce and keep the white baby population popping sinister. It is very sinister. And if you've watched Handmaid's Tale, you're just like, this is very... Handmaid's Tale is a horror movie because... A horror show. Because it's so easy that it could happen. Like, the horror, the thriller of it all is the fact that it's just not that far-fetched. Well, I heard somebody say, I don't remember who it was. I wish I did. Being like, can you believe that... Oh, I think it was Alingon. Do you know the comic? Of course. Aling- yes. Um, what brilliant shit did Alingon Mitra say? He said... Um, can you believe they outlawed abortion in Alabama? And he was like, yeah. Yeah. Of course I can. It's fucking Alabama. Alabama is the worst. Like, it's literally never been a hotbed for progressiveness. For intellectual. Or intellectual. 
growth. It's like, it's just not what it is. So yeah. Now, if you had said to me, like, can you believe they outlawed abortion in California? Right. Then I'd be like, right, really? Right, 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 Did they right. outlaw surfing? Right. Like, <laughs> you know, so, but I just feel like the conversation always gets skewed mm-hmm. because it ends up always being attempted to be backed into a corner of generalizations. Mm-hmm. And the reality is that every woman is an individual right. and they are making laws that are being carried out as if women are a blanket population of people. Mm-hmm. And the reality, I need to stop saying the reality, but we keep having to say it because it's, if you're dealing with any type of laws, whether it's drug laws or um, money laundering, etc., like you deal with the individual case. But when it comes to abortion, they're just trying to make it to where there is no individuality in the cases. It's it's just not it's not it's and the reality and and the truth of the fact of the matter is, is that there shouldn't even be a case. Well, that's that's what that's what really it comes down to is how come women are the only people who are responsible. So, like, why for- are men not a part of these? Yeah, like so. Then you have to pay child support. The but like, se- I mean, the second. So if a woman. If a woman terminates a pregnancy, so the man who got her pregnant has no, there's, there's literally no, there's no repercussions. No, and there's no responsibility. You know that there was just a case about someone who raped a woman who then fought her for custody of the child. I will, and got I will it. burn this place down. And got it. Where was that? Alabama? Uh, I mean, it was some fucking place. That sounds it like was some, some, West fu- Virginia, some fucking. It place. was some fucking. That sounds place. like yeah, West but, Virginia. I mean, that's, the thing is, is that like that's happening. Like that's not the only time that's ever happened. Let me tell you, somebody got to die. <laughs> that's some shit right there. Somebody got to die. It's crazy. How are we? Like I hear stories like that, and I'm just like, who gets is getting up the next morning? Like, yeah, I did that. I did the right thing for that. I did the right thing. Well, I mean, I don't know how corrupt are these fucking judges. Like, like who is the ju- let's guess that's who what I'm is saying. the judge in that case? Who is the judge that wakes up the next morning and is like, I did the right thing, and like somebody's probably sucking Brett his Kavanaugh. dick. That too. It was Kavanaugh. No, it wasn't. I was gonna <laughs> say. And I'm all, the, all, I'm always just like, there's but always like fill a in the blank. It was Brett. Yeah. Maybe his last name wasn't Kavanaugh. Kavanaugh Lynch. <laughs> whatever. But I, but that's so that you know that's my thoughts on abortion. At the end of the day, it should be a woman's right. I think that there is a certain level of regulation that should be put in, in place in terms of terms. But when it comes down to it, you're not having the baby. You're not even creating systems to support that child when it's born. You know, at the same time that you're forcing women to have children that they're not necessarily able to have, you also are continuing to create. Uh, Wage, wage gaps that are insurmountable. Uh-huh. You're not, you're creating inflation. You're not allowing people to have a livable wage on mm-hmm. minimum wage. You are depleting uh, government assistance. You are making it more and more difficult to get st- like strong schooling and supporting teachers. Like you're doing all the things that make it hard to raise an actual responsible adult. You're also putting like children in cages and letting them die. So there's, th- that. there's that too. You're saving a baby but you're not raising an adult or a child but i'm saying i don't even think about it as raising a child like you're a child is going to become an adult the whole goal right right. the whole thing is to get them to to, adulthood right the whole goal is to get them to be someone in society that can like advance society yeah right and you you do need to be able to have 
a good childhood, a solid, mm-hmm. structured childhood, ideally, in order to be able yeah, to become that person. Yeah, of course you do. You do. And so it's, it's, it's essential. But I think people don't think about that. People think about a baby. They don't think about where this child is going to grow up into. Then you have people who only think about a baby. They don't think, of the, they don't think about the child is going to become eight years old at some point. They forget that this kid is going to talk. It's horrible. This kid's going to talk. This kid has feelings. This kid is going to become a teenager. All of, you know, and, and as a teenager, you can have a child. You can get a gun. Like, all these things. But no one's thinking bigger picture. And then when someone like me or you thinks bigger picture, they're like, you're a fucking negative Nancy. Right. Or you're annoying or you're difficult or, you know, you think you're, you're a know-it-all. Well, Call I, me a know-it-all. I can't believe you've ever been called a know-it-all. <laughs> I got called a know it all last week. <laughs> You're just hey. a know it all. And I was hey, like, well, maybe, maybe I, I am. know more than you. <laughs> <laughs> That's what you're really mad about. Um, you actually did say something about that that resonated with me. You said, and I wrote it down because I don't want to fuck it up. Um, and I, you were talking about mental health, but I think that this could actually. Apply? Apply to to a, a lot of things. that You said stop acting like everyone has the same access to the insight you've had access to. I'm just like, give it a fucking rest. And I've, I've, been, I've been guilty of doing that before. But it's like, I hate this culture of like, how did you not know that? Right. I hate it so much because... And then it'll be done to people who are, like, very clearly not from the same access point. Mm -hmm. Like, this was in reference to YG, who is very clearly, like, a rapper from Compton who didn't have the best education access, Mm -hmm. who was in gang gang violence and gang culture for most of his life, continues to be probably, Mm -hmm. and really is, like, just embarking on this awareness about, like, what is mental health? Mm -hmm. And people were like, how does he not? know what mental health is i'm like first of all you just fucking found out right you what just, mental health is you don't like, know mental on health a, is with, on a tumblr meme right. <laughs> on facebook like two years ago right so let's like everybody like bring it down a notch and yeah it can be very um condescending and then once you start being condescending to people then they just shut down they don't want to be receptive right 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 it's um but but there are people who have the same amount of insight as I've had and are just being willfully ignorant. And that's when I have a problem. And do you find, I mean, have you been pleasantly surprised in people being open-minded or open to other perspectives or point of views or learning shit that like they maybe didn't know? And I mean, I hate to say seeing the light because it's so tired, but... Um, I think the best, the most encouraging thing. So, for instance, like for Smart, Funny, and Black, I think what's been really dope is this two particular, two particular responses that I get from the show Smart, Funny, and Black. One, I'll get Black people who are like, "I really didn't realize how disconnected from our culture I have been, and that I really need to get back, and that I actually have been successfully brainwashed into mm-hmm. thinking that we didn't make all these contributions to this country." So I'll hear that, and then I'll also hear people say, "Like I didn't realize." how much I was craving a safe space because I've become so accustomed to just having to muddle through the mainstream um, 
the mainstream ostracization of my experience mm -hmm. that I forgot that like I would benefit from having like an experience where I'm in a safe space to be black. And like I always say, like when we do Smart, Funny and Black, like everyone can come to the show, but it is tailored to the black experience. Mm -hmm. It's well, everyone's welcome. It's curated for black folk in the same way that like I would not go to a bat mitzvah and ask, when are we going to swag surf? Like, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not. Are people coming to your shows trying to dance the horror? Uh, you know what I'm saying? But like, it's like, just respect a culture. Like, respect a space for what is happening in that space. If I come to a bar mitzvah, I know what I'm coming to do. I know what I'm coming to experience. And I also know that like, I need to have a certain large level of just space between me and newness. Mm -hmm. And just ex accepting that like, they're, they're not here for me. Or just be quiet and just listen. Just be quiet and listen. Like, they're just, not here for me. Mm -hmm. I'm here for Baruch Atah, Chaladanai, and like You're totally becoming an honorary Jew before you leave this place. Like, that's what I'm here to do. And so with Smart, Funny, and Black, I feel that with my stand-up or with Small Doses, the thing I get from people is oftentimes more so about like people realizing that they, were, they didn't know something, like they didn't know their own strength or they didn't know their own like failure to research like that was like brought to their attention like wait a minute i've really been fucking up like i didn't realize that i have been being led and that i like actually do need to do my own research for things and you know like that's a gift and the curse of all this information right we have this information age and social media where feel like things are brought to our fingertips so easily that we forget that like just cuz that was brought to your fingertips doesn't mean it's accurate mm -hmm. like you actually should fact check that and um that's really beautiful i mean that must be really wonderful it is to see it and is do. i mean ever so often i get like a you dirty cunt and i'm like black women don't care about the word cunt <laughs> bye <laughs> i think one of the problems one of the many problems is that white people come into spaces and they really do feel entitled to take up space. Yes. And they do that everywhere. They go, they're doing that in your hood. Mm -hmm. They're doing that in the aisle in the grocery store. They're doing that when you're standing in line to board the plane. And they just are like, you can't possibly be in first class. Like, move. <laughs> like, it's just happening all that. They're doing that. I mean, literally, I was at TSA once and a man physically tried to walk through me. Just like physically walk through me. And I was like, what the, what are you doing? And he was like, you're in the way. And then tried to do it again. And then when I pushed him, because I ain't no sucker, he said, oh, she put her hands on me. And the three black women TSA agents were like, get out of here. Get your bag and get out of here. <laughs> like, what are you, what? Get out of here. But that's potentially dangerous for a black person to do in the country we live in. 1,000%. Um, but it's also... Like if there weren't three black no, women yeah, there. No, yeah, she could have went left very yeah. easily. But I'm also Jason Bourne, so I had already peep game. I already knew who was there. <laughs> I knew who was right, there. Because you're 18 months ahead all the time. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I knew who was there. I know I'm with my white publicist, and she's not letting shit go right, down. Right, right, um, right. Yeah, Tess Finkel ain't letting it happen. Mm -hmm. So, like, she will, yeah, call on, like, the entire Israeli army if she Amazing. has to. <laughs> like, so I just knew, like, in that space, I feel like I always have to, but that's another thing about privilege, right? Like, 
he's so privileged that he didn't have to scope right. before right. he acted out. That's right. Didn't even occur to him. It never occurred to him. No. I'm walking into every space like, uh, scan. Yeah. I know what I'm in. I mean, okay. that's what the joke is on my pi- on my special. I'm on a plane and I realize I'm the only black person on this plane. Mm-hmm. You think any white people realize I was the only black person on this plane? They're not looking. They're not looking. They're not looking. But I'm always having to have a certain level of awareness for safety mm-hmm. and also for jokes. And also for <laughs> jokes. <laughs> is there anything else that we need to... Let me make sure I get in here. Smart, funny, and black. I just com. need to... Yeah, I need to just plug the fact that like... This is our second tour for Smart, Funny, and Black. I created Smart, Funny, and Black in my living room. Um, it was just like I was in L.A. and realizing that there was no like comedy safe space for black folks. Like we used to have Deaf Comedy Jam and Living Color and you know Chappelle Show and even Comic View. And we just don't have anything like that anymore. And it was like I wanted to create something that... Um, was able to use more than just my comedy, but also my intellect. And then it turned out to develop into also using my musical ability. So we have a live band. And basically, I bring two guests on the show that are already proven funny folks. And I write these games that test their knowledge of black culture, black history, and the black experience. And we take them through a show that challenges them and challenges the audience. And we sing all these songs and we, we dance and we come up with shit and we improv and it ends up being just like a very theatrical Mm -hmm. experience. And it's gone from nerd melt, which it used to just be like in the back of a comic bookstore in LA. Wow. Is that where it started? That's where it started. And now we just did um, a residency at the Kennedy Center and we were in the concert hall. We had a 2,300 seat room. Oh my God. That's amazing. Like doing the electric slide in the Kennedy Center. Like I know, the, I, I know JFK was like, what is going <laughs> on down there? And, uh, it was incredible to just see how, because you get scared sometimes when you create something in an intimate space. You're like, is it going to translate to a big space? But this is something that needs to translate to a big space because so many more people need it. Like, we're going to cities this time on the tour outside of like the major markets like Chicago and um, Detroit and Atlanta. You know, we're going to smaller markets like St. Louis and Columbus, Ohio, and, and uh, Kansas City, Missouri, and Richmond, Virginia. And like, I think that there was a part of me that was like, damn, like when we're going to smaller markets, like are we going to really do numbers? But then it's like, you got to go to those smaller markets because they're not getting shit. Right. Like they're not, and they're the ones having to deal mm-hmm. with these unsafe spaces so much more mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because urban centers definitely have more access to cultural diversity, et cetera. So like, nah, you need to bring this to those spaces. So you can get tickets to Smart, Funny, and Black um, at smartfunnyandblack.com. We'll be on the road July 5th through the end of July. I also like, I won an award. I won an award at JFL. Tell us about it. I won a rising, the rising comedy star award. Wow. That's really exciting. It's trippy, right? It's like, I mean, I'm not surprised at all, <laughs> but that's so cool. You also were written up as um, one of the most creative people of 2019 in Fast Company. In Fast Company. And they gave me like a dope ass spread. I'm I number know, 100, but... <laughs> Well, last but not least, that's better than being like number 37, isn't it? It's easy to find. Yeah. It's, it's and right. I got a two page spread. Yeah, so I saw it. It's, I'll take it. 
you're so multi-talented. You do so many things. I mean, I think and that is, you can see it. Like Jody said, shout out to Jody Lieberman of <laughs> Talent Rises. Talent Rises. Thank you, and thank you for having me. Um, thank you so much for coming. And I'm Periel Ashenbrand, and this is Live From The Table. You can follow us on Instagram at Live From The Table. And you can also email us at podcast.comedyseller.com. Thank you, Amanda. Thank you. And thank you, everyone, for listening. And um, bye. <laughs> bye. Bye.